0: You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Jennifer Stock, and you're tuned to Ocean Currents on KWMR. This show delves into the blue part of our planet and highlights ocean-related topics. We talk with scientists, educators, explorers, policy folks, ocean enthusiasts, ocean adventurers, and more, all trying to uncover and learn about this mysterious and vital part of our planet. My name is Jennifer Stock, and I bring this show to you from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. Cordell Bank is one of four special areas in California waters that are part of the National Marine Sanctuary System. So today we are talking with Wallace J. Nichols, who goes by Jay. And just some background on him um, Jay professionally is a scientist, an ocean activist, a pioneer an educator, an author, a speaker, and so much more. It's hard to pin Jay into any one arena in terms of what he does, which is actually better in that he has spread across so many disciplines, all for the ocean and for our planet. His launch into the ocean arena started with a passion for sea turtles and doing field research and community organization to help the conservation of these animals. And today he works with several universities, organizations, and communities nationally, nationally and internationally to advance ocean inspiration and conservation. So I'd like to welcome Jay Nichols. Jay, you're live on the air.
1: Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks, Jenny.
0: Are you in Santa Cruz right now?
1: I am in Davenport, which is just a little bit up the coast from Santa Cruz.
0: Beautiful. Yes. Well, I hope you're having a crisp, clean day like we're having up here on Point Reyes.
1: Lovely. It's actually a perfect fall day. Excellent.
0: Excellent. So I'm, it's just so nice to have you on the air. I've been trying to get you um, on the air for a while, and it's nice to have the time. And because you have such a diversity of work, I just wanted to start with really: how did you get find your way to the ocean as a career and as a lifelong passion?
1: Well, you know, like a lot of a lot of people, end up uh, working as a biologist as as a kid. I had a thing for nature. I, I loved turtles. I, I love just to hang out and explore creeks and the woods and, and the coast on, on the east coast where I grew up. And uh, one of my favorite things to do as a kid was to catch snapping turtles, big, gnarly animals that we used to catch. In, and uh, as kids, I painted numbers on, on their backs, and then we'd let them go. And then if we saw them again, we'd kind of record a, a little bit of data. And you know, little did we know that we were doing... Mark Recapture research and the simple algebra that we were using to figure out how big the population was was exactly what, what I'd be doing later on and at some point along the way, somebody spilled the beans and said you know you you can be a a wildlife biologist a marine biologist that's that's a legit career and uh, i didn't know anybody who was doing that, so it was sort of came sort of a surprise, and once I heard about it i, I said well i I'm signing up for that. What do I need to do?
0: <laughs>
1: and uh, when I tell my daughter Grace, I went to the 24th grade, which means I uh, got a lot of education, several advanced degrees, uh, and you know, all kind of moving towards this goal of being uh, involved with nature as a career, and not just you know, as you mentioned, not just studying nature, but uh, solving problems and, and bringing as many different disciplines together as as we need to, to solve the most pressing problems uh, that we're facing.
0: That's great. You're very lucky in the sense of your being able to follow your passion. Not many of us actually get to do that, so it's pretty cool.
1: I feel lucky I, <laughs> and I love what I do.
0: So you got interested in turtles at a wee age. Uh, those snapping turtles are pretty gnarly, so I guess you're <laughs> ready for those big loggerhead turtles in Mexico. And that was your field study uh, subject for a while, right, loggerhead turtles?
1: Yeah, we uh, we started uh, early on looking at sea turtles off the coast of Baja, California, Mexico, where uh, very little research had been done, uh, but a lot of um, problems were, were facing the turtles in terms of their... The turtles were being hunted for their meat, and they were getting caught in a wide variety of fishing nets, uh, and as a result, they're going away. They're they're going extinct. So uh, we started studying them in the hopes of finding out some things that could help uh, their recovery. And I quickly learned that the genetics work that I was doing and that the tracking work that I was doing, while well, well, really interesting to me as a scientist, uh, wasn't as important as, as working closely with people in the communities and uh, you know, community organizing, working with uh, fishing co-ops and and kind of really finding, together, finding solutions to the problem of bycatch, of turtles being caught in their nets, and uh, the problem of overhunting, which just was rampant throughout the region.
0: So in, in Baja, were they actively trying to catch loggerhead turtles for meat? What was, it, what was their opinion of loggerheads and as far as conservation versus catch and whatnot?
1: Well, you know, the favorite turtle to eat was a green turtle. Uh, loggerheads were less popular as, as food, uh, for people, um, but it, you know, the, the tradition, uh, longstanding tradition was, was to eat sea turtle meat and any big event, any, any big celebration, any fiesta, uh, ranging from a birthday to a quinceanera to, uh, New Year's or Easter, uh, turtle meat was, was served at political rallies and, and you name it. That, that, it was the traditional uh, meal, um, so loggerheads really weren't the the focus. The green turtles were really the ones that were getting hammered. But uh, loggerheads were were kind of a, a second choice um, to the green turtle as far as food. But it you know it turned out, every, nobody wanted the turtles to disappear. Uh, not the biologists, not the turtle hunters, not the people who just ate the turtles. Uh, we all agreed that it would be bad if they, if they were completely wiped out. So there, there was some common ground to start from. And once we started learning that the loggerhead turtles that they were eating and catching uh, were born in Japan, on the other side of the planet, and they made that long trip, and they hung out in Baja until they went back home to Japan, 7,000 miles away. Uh, once we started learning that and sharing that information, things got a little more interesting. People looked at that uh, turtle soup a little bit differently when they kind of brought that little sense of awe uh, about the natural history of these animals to, to the table, literally. And conversation kind of grew from there.
0: So um, would you say technology then, with new technologies and, and studying these animals and showing new pictures and imagery helped... Helped change the conversation a little bit.
1: Absolutely, yeah. You know, it, it's it's high tech and low tech and no tech. <laughs> so conversations—the keyword—sharing uh, the information, and sometimes the information that you're sharing comes from uh, a, a satellite transmitter that's you know sending you data through email uh, from a turtle to outer space back to back to the ground to, through the wires to your email, uh, and then you map it out and and show people what, what these animals are doing, the amazing feats that they're they're capable of and and that the turtle swimming in their backyard was you know, is headed back home to Japan and it's you know passing the Hawaiian Islands and uh, but that you know, at the, the base of that is communication and you know, eyeball to eyeball conversations, the ongoing uh, decade long conversations about some of this stuff. And and some of them are still still underway. Conversations that are kind of midstream. People are uh, all we're all at different stages in figuring out our place on the planet and um, our relationship with the ocean and with with nature. And uh, the, you know, you, you need to recognize that, and you, you hop into somebody's life, and they're they may be ready to talk about tracking a turtle in Japan, but. Not necessarily ready to give up turtle soup mm-hmm. so that conversation that you, you jump in at at different points, whether you're talking to your father in- law about recycling or um, a fisherman in Baja about endangered turtles it's a, it's a you know it's a different.
0: Everyone's at a different place. Everybody's in a different place, yeah. So can we go back a little bit to the loggerhead? I, th- I think the migration is fascinating because that is clearly just an amazing migration. And immediately when you were telling that story, I had this image in my mind of this turtle has no idea it's being watched <laughs> by all these people. And just the the stories that st- that turtle could tell. Is that a, a typical normal migration? They're born in Japan and they come to Baja to feed and then...
1: Yeah, for loggerheads, for there, you know, there are seven species of sea turtle in the world. Loggerhead's just one of them, and we've got loggerhead turtles in the Pacific Ocean. And when when we first started, I first started studying uh, turtles in Baja as a grad student. Uh, the the paradigm, of the you know, the the basic idea about about these turtles was that they nested in Japan, and they probably stayed over there and that there was this odd population of loggerheads that hung out on our side of the Pacific along the coast of California in Baja California, and nobody knew where they nested because it couldn't be Japan because that's just too far away and animals can't cross the ocean. So we were looking for the mysterious missing nesting beach for these Baja loggerheads that must be hidden somewhere along the coast of Mexico. And so that was kind of the You know, you're you're working a hypothesis. And then through the process of looking at their genetics, um, getting some insights from some some little flipper tags, and then finally uh, one day we we got this transmitter donated, and we uh, were in Baja and put it on the back of a a turtle and named the turtle Adelita after the uh, the daughter of the fisherman who was helping us to attach it uh, out in this small little... Pacific town on the coast of Baja. We released her into the ocean, uh, kind of waved goodbye. A colleague filmed her swimming away. And we thought we'd go back and see what she did over the next few days. And she just started headed, heading, heading home. And over the course of the next 368 days, she swam about 7,000 miles. And she, it was the first animal ever tracked swimming across an entire ocean. And this was back in 1996. Um, and a, a colleague, another grad student in the computer sciences department, I remember saying, hey, you, you should share that data. And I was like, wow, I've been sharing it. I've been faxing it down to the guys in Baja. And I show it to everybody. And like, no, no, you should build a website. <laughs> and I said, well, what's a website? <laughs> <laughs> so there's this new thing that, you know, you build a website. So we built a website. And... uh Turns out there are lots of people who already knew what websites were, and they all found ours because it was the coolest thing going on in uh, animal research on on the internet. So before the year was over, we had millions of kids all over the world tracking, following Adelita uh, every every stroke of the way uh, across the ocean. So it was kind of a little bit of an insight early on for me into the uh, the power of um, the web and uh, wow. social media and building networks of um, like-minded people who, who care about you know, maybe sea turtles and maybe something else. But in this case, it was this one tur- one turtle, sort of the, the free willie of the turtle world.
0: <laughs> and now we're tracking so many other animals. And
1: now it's gone completely wide open. And you, you can go on the Internet, you can go to websites like seaturtle.org and... Uh, Track just dozens, and hundreds of different animals all over the world—birds um, and turtles and mammals and, and tuna and uh, you know, all kinds of animals. Just, it's amazing.
0: Well, this has been. A, I'm glad you brought this up. It's a bit a huge hook that I've been really working hard on, as far as um, being able to bring this into classrooms and in the way that teachers can bring it in, because. We have so many issues with schools being able to do certain things and not other things, but we've been really trying to get schools to be able to use this data in their classrooms so the students can study these animals so it's so great that it's available on the internet and that scientists are willing to share
1: yeah, that's really important and from you know from day one with our our tracking efforts, we made uh, all of the the data available in in real time immediately, and you know some people thought, well, you know aren't you afraid somebody's going to steal your data and my my response perhaps naive was steal it you know if you <laughs> you gonna steal my turtle data and use it to save sea turtles right on go for it I'm you know it's, we need they need our help we need we need help and uh what's somebody gonna do with turtle data geez except maybe help turtles so <laughs> uh, from so- that point on we just we just share share everything as widely as we possibly can
0: That's great. So it sounds like when you came into this study of turtles, you started out with that science mind, but it sounds like conservation is more, the conservation that you're practicing is much more than science and data, and when did this realization click for you? And how have you brought others along to participate in this? Because I know you started some consortiums down in Baja of bringing everybody together to help turn this tide. And how have things progressed since that first started when you came down there and were witnessing all this bycatch, and, or not so much bycatch, yeah. but actual fishing for turtles? How, did you, how long did it take for things to turn around and to get that conversation going, which is still in movement?
1: Well, we're, we're going on two decades of... Uh of work with, with the communities in Baja, and um, to kind—I of, guess—to answer your first question, I, I probably knew that it was uh, about more than science and data. I Always knew that. I think we're, we we sort of know that the world is is complex and it, it can't be reduced to some some numbers and, and a little bit of science. Um, That's way more than that, and. And then you go, to, you go to school, and so you get that kind of gets squeezed, and you get put into boxes and in departments, and some departments don't talk to others, and uh, things kind of get narrowed down. And, um, and then you get thrown out into the world uh, to solve real problems, and you kind of have to come back to that thing that you already knew, which is that it's all connected. And uh, you know I can publish 50 peer-reviewed scientific papers and the turtles may still go extinct. That's just the way it is. And you got to get beyond um, just the science and the data and, and put things into practice. So, kind of immediately uh, started realizing that. And the the challenge was to get my PhD, jump through those hoops
0: mm-hmm.
1: back at the university, uh, and and also feel like I was doing the work that I. Uh, really wanted to do, and that that, that was really um, pressing in terms of working with the community. So, uh, my you know, my Ph.D. was in ecology and evolutionary biology, not community organizing. So the more time I spent on working with communities and kids and fishermen, the less I was spending on, uh, you know, quote-unquote hard science, and my advisors weren't really digging it. So it was kind of uh, a moonlighting as a community organizer. Um, as a grad student and and as time went on I realized how important it really was so um, we started something called uh, Grupo Tortuguero which means turtle group and basically it was all the the fishermen and their families and kids from our various field sites and we invited them to get together uh, for a weekend and talk about the future of sea turtles and nobody had ever invited them Uh, to to participate in conservation before so uh, it was unusual and they had an awful lot to to offer and then at the end of that first meeting we decided that we would meet again uh... we came up with with a uh... a name (laughs) we needed a name, turtle (laughs) group, so that was easy we voted unanimously on both (laughs) things and then uh... the the group has been meeting for twelve years uh, since that first meeting, so and now it's a, a full blown um, Mexican nonprofit organization that's very community based and uh, has taken really a uh, they say bottom up approach. Um, although these guys are kind of on 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 the top of things in terms of their being directly interacting with sea turtles daily, uh, and it's it's really it's working. You know, the, the good news is that there's a force um, on the ground in Baja working for, for the sea turtles, working to bring them back. Um, and it's, they're coming back. That's, the, I guess, the big news. That's and, exciting. Yeah, it's very, it's very exciting. And, and you know, the, the better the news gets, the more excited people get and the harder they want to work. And uh, they're realizing that, wow, we, we, took, we took a group of animals that was literally um, ecologically extinct. You know, there were, there were few and far between. And that used to be abundant. And we're bringing them back, and it's working. And it wasn't um, somebody telling us what to do; it was uh, a group of people working together, figuring it out, and and turning things around. And it's a it's become kind of a model for that that type of work, uh, not just with sea turtles, but with, with other endangered species around the world. And um, the the leaders, the grassroots leaders in Mexico, are. are now, spokespeople for um, for that, and they, they travel and, and speak to other communities, and
0: and are are in kind of in demand. Uh, That's great. For those, yeah, it's very exciting. <laughs> for those folks just tuning in, we're talking with Jay Nichols, and right now we're talking about loggerhead turtles and the conservation work that Jay has spearheaded in, in Mexico. Now you said that things are turtles are coming back they're co- coming back in population how have things changed on the ground for fishermen in Baja what have what practices have changed as a result of this community work
1: Well you know the first thing that we the first threat to the sea turtles that that we we started dealing with was that people were um well, they were just eating a lot of turtles eating a lot of adult turtles and 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 big uh immature turtles uh, by the thousands, literally tens of thousands, um, and once that started to slow down, that kind of gave the, the turtle population some breathing room and it could kind of recover a bit. Um, so that was a, that was kind of a big deal. Like the younger generation, you know, this has been going on for twelve years. Um, you know, the, the kids that were eight when we started are now twenty, and they uh, are making decisions of their own about what to eat and they're choosing that not to eat sea turtle. And um, that's, that's a, a shift uh, away from eating an endangered species uh, into extinction to uh, protecting them. Uh, one of the things that's happening is that people are... Uh, tourism is big for Mexico. Uh, a lot of people are, have been to Mexico as, as tourists, uh, whether it's fishing or surfing or, or just uh, going for the sun. And having the chance to go see a turtle, go out for a kayak and see a turtle swimming or go to the beach at night and, and see a turtle laying eggs, uh, people are realizing that that's, that's a better way to use turtles sustainably uh, as, as part of a, a smart, uh, sustainable ecotourism effort. So that's, that's changed. That's a whole new idea. You know, whale watching and turtle watching mm-hmm. uh, kind of, can kind of go together. Um, so that's happening, and then there's more attention on, on bycatch. So where where once turtles would get caught in nets and then thrown over and just wash up on the beach, and nobody would pay any attention or even count them, now there are lots of people around who pay attention. Uh, they record that data, and then if they find bycatch hotspots, places where the problem's really bad, uh, they put together projects and and, and work with fishermen to. To reduce the bycatch, so um, that wasn't going on ten years ago. So all these things taken together, uh, a general awareness and a general kind of celebration of the sea turtle, uh, not just by eating it, but celebrating it alive. Uh, this is kind of transforming it as a as a symbol, and then the result is they're coming back. Uh, but you know, in other parts of the world, sea turtles aren't doing as well. Um, you know the leatherback sea turtle in the Pacific is is one of the most endangered populations uh, of any animal in in our oceans, and um, still is, is right on on the brink, and so we've got a lot of work to do to to rescue the leatherback turtle. Uh, so um, and as a a great group based in Marin, I, I'd love to give a shout out to mm-hmm. Sea Turtle Restoration Project.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: Todd Steiner and his team. Uh, Great friends and colleagues. Uh, they're really uh, been on the on the front line of sea turtle conservation on on, a, on the national and international uh, stage for. I think they're they're coming up on 20 years. Their 20th anniversary is coming up, and uh, their website's sea turtles with an s sea turtles plural, dot org. And uh, if you if you love turtles and you live in Marin. Um, you definitely want to check out Sea Turtle Restoration Project and and uh, sign up for their big anniversary.
0: They have a great website, really giving a lot of background information on turtles. And I've had them on the show before, too. We've talked about leatherbacks, and they've been very participatory in uh, our advisory council. And just actually a few weeks ago, uh, with Todd's leadership bringing it to the Sanctuary Advisory Council, they passed a resolution to... Um, not recommend this uh, experimental permit that's being asked of in in the Northern California waters here for leatherback take. So it's been exciting to have them aboard and and really participating with other projects going on. So thanks for mentioning them. Sure. Um, So as far as your work, there's been a lot of work in Baja, but you've also worked internationally beyond Mexico, I, th- I think, with other um, turtle groups. Uh, and you're working on some international group that is also looking at other, helping other turtle um, restoration projects. What are some of the, what's some of the other international work happening beyond Mexico? Yeah,
1: one has- of the, well, one of the projects that kind of grew out of our, our experience in Mexico is um, something we call CSEE Turtles. And uh, they'll play on words, and the idea is that there are a lot of people, uh, like I was when I was a kid, who want to have an experience. They want to go to a place and have a authentic, uh, well-run uh, interaction you know, with with a sea turtle. They want to they want to see a sea turtle, and uh, I can't explain why. Uh, there are lots of people who just love these animals, and uh, so we thought, well, it's it would be good if there were best practices if there were some guidelines for how to do that in the best possible way and have to have the the smallest impact or no impact on on the animals but to bring uh, a big benefit to helping protect them. so we we took the experience of Baja and looked around the world to see if there were places that had a combination of of need uh, and um, simple infrastructure so that people could show up and, and have a place to, to sleep and something to eat and, and a guide uh, that could could help them. And we've piloted this project in, in Mexico and in Baja uh, in Costa Rica and in Trinidad and Tobago. And after two years, it's, it's been a great success and we're, we're starting to expand to some other sites. And our role is just sort of uh, matchmaker in a way uh, between... Uh, say people who are hanging out in Cincinnati, Ohio, dreaming about turtles, and the people working on the on the beaches in Central America who would love that person to to come and spend a week and uh, help out and and see their turtles and inject a little bit of cash into their into their project. And uh, so that's our role is just to helping people see turtles and. Uh, it's been really fun, and, and there's there's a lot of, a lot of interest from both sides, from, from projects that need need that little extra bit of support, so they can expand their conservation work, uh, and a lot of interest from people who, um, just want to go and, and take a look at a, a wild sea turtle.
0: Speaking or, of uh, best practices, are there any? Issues as far as how many people can be in the water? Because I've snorkeled around turtles. I've always wondered. I mean, they just seem so aware. They're aware and they kind of do their thing. But is there, are, is there a concern about too many people approaching a turtle or surrounding a turtle like there are with marine mammals?
1: Yeah, it's, a lot of, it's very parallel to uh, the concerns around um, you know, whale watching and, and, and uh, chasing marine mammals. Um, the, the one thing that you, you realize is when you're in the water with a turtle, if the turtle... Doesn't want to be near you. If you blink, it's gone. They're very fast and graceful in the water. Um, that said, you know we don't want to stress them out and chase them around the ocean. Um, so if you have a group of people, you don't want to surround them. You always want to give them a, an easy way to just let you know that they want to go away. Um, you know, slowly following them is is uh, if they seem like they're going about their business and. Uh, nibbling on the coral or seagrass, and uh, you're watching them. That's that's the best scenario. Uh, in places like Hawaii, uh, I've been in the water and the turtles come right up to you, and even have uh, bonked me in the head right on my mask. Oh. Oh, Lord. Uh, <laughs> out of curiosity, I guess they just want to check you out. So uh, maybe they've got their own sea people project, and they're you know <laughs> coming to see us. But there are uh, other places where you know, there's a little more sensitivity about the turtles because they're, uh, they're still being hunted. They're a bit more stressed out. So, you know, we, we have guidelines for the guides and for uh, the dive shops and for the people who take tourists out on the beach at night, uh, limiting the amount of light they use and not disturbing the turtles while they're in the critical nesting stages. Um, and certain times when you should release the hatchlings, you don't release the hatchlings in you know the bright sun, midday when the predators can can just scoop them up, things like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's fairly straightforward, uh, and a lot of projects uh, can easily uh, better their their practices by by following these guidelines. Even and though carrot mm-hmm. is we 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 offer, um, uh, you know, put them on the on the website if they're if they're conducting their their tourism activities appropriately. And uh, that's the carrot um, for for doing things right.
0: That's cool. I know up here we don't have a lot of turtles, although we want them to come back, the leatherbacks. But I know that, you know, one of the big concerns is during the season that they are potentially here is just the boating. And turtles are not able to get out of the way of these big ships as quickly and boats that are going really fast to get out. And about really could do some damage. So I'm sure you have best practices with boats in the water as well.
1: Yeah, if you're in an area that's known to be a, 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 particularly a foraging area or, or, or near a nesting nesting beach, you're, you know you definitely want to throttle down and and be aware of of sea turtles at the surface because we we do find a lot of turtles that get hit by by boats and uh, their shells can be broken by the hull of a boat and um, there's no you know. There's no real good reason to do that, so slowing down if you know you 're in a
0: turtle
1: in sea turtle area is, is a good idea and you know, in the fall uh, in the Bay Area, we get reports all the time of, of boaters certain years uh, more than others, but boaters who are, are seeing leatherbacks out there uh, floating at the surface and it 's quite a quite a neat thing, yeah, pretty excited
0: well jay we 're just about at the half hour here, and I need to take a short break. Um, So I hope you'll just stay with us for a few minutes. Sure will. Um, You mentioned about sea turtles being a little stressed if there's too much around, and it kind of segues to the second half of the show. What I wanted to talk more about is about our ocean planet being stressed and what we're doing, and you've been doing some great work that I really want to share. So I hope listeners will stick around. We're talking with Jay Nichols, who is an ocean revolutionary. He's actually a a co-founder of Ocean Revolution an organization really working to do uh, get people, young people, really involved with ocean conservation and education. So we'll talk a little bit more about that on the second break, second half. But just stay with us for a little bit. Uh, Jay, you can stay right on the line. And for those of you just tuning in, you're listening to Ocean Currents, and we're going to take a short break. I have a song here from a colleague, actually, Bob Steelquist and his wife, Jenny Steelquist, the elderberries up in Olympic Coast area in Washington. Stay with us. Across on a
1: breeze, an island, a forest of flowers
0: and trees. All kinds of animals live there in peace. Butterflies and birdies, grasshoppers and bees. The honeybirds are
1: coming. They'll be here by dawn. Sleep, little baby, as I sing you. If you
0: are quiet, you'll hear the wind blow The fills up the sails, bringing honey boats home. I have Jane Nichols on the phone with me, and we have been talking about turtles and loggerhead turtle conservation that Jay has been really involved in, but I want to shift a little bit now because Jay's world has also opened up to bringing more and more people into this world about ocean protection and ocean awareness, and Jay, just a few years ago, you co-founded Ocean Revolution, which I love saying because it just brings out this powerful word to me. But tell me a little, tell us a little bit more about um, the theory behind this group and what you're doing with these youth.
1: Well, the, yeah, the the idea initially for Ocean Revolution kind of came out of the um, you know realization noticing that. There's an awful lot of really good ocean science going on for young people, and these great uh, ocean camps and uh, weekend experiences, and and some you know funding going into uh, teaching um, just the basics of science in the ocean. And and as a scientist, I, you know I love that, but also recognizing that there there's so much more to it to taking care of the ocean. There's all the advocacy part and the policy part and the art and the music and uh, filmmaking. And um, that really wasn't getting much attention. And so we started Ocean Revolution kind of with that in mind, to be, you know, certainly strong on the science and and not in any way downplaying the importance of it, but also uh, trying to bring in students, young people who love the ocean, who are really aligned with maybe making their careers or their lives Dedicated to protecting the ocean, but who were unlikely to become scientists and marine biologists. And we found that there's just a lot of kids out there, a lot of a lot of youth who are concerned about the ocean. They're turned on and excited about it, uh, and they want to help and they want to plug in, um, but not just in a scientific kind of way. So yeah, uh, it just kind of started out with at, at, at that idea, and it's grown into this. Uh, evolving uh, open network of, of young people uh, all over the world who uh, connect with each other uh, share their experiences uh, fire up each other's leadership uh, and creativity and uh, are doing great things and so we're we basically uh, help where we can uh, if there's say there's a a guy in Mozambique who who dreams of being a, a dive master uh we can help make some connections and and help make that happen. And and that was the case with Carlos, uh, who's uh, the first Mozambican dive master. And uh, that was his dream, and and we we helped facilitate that. Now he's got his own growing network of of young people that he teaches about the ocean. And uh, it's it's people like him, uh, some of the people we work with in in the U.S. and Mexico, have similar stories of just... um, feeling empowered a lot of them live in little coastal communities where they may be the only person who's kind of thinking this way and uh... they don't have access to uh, a mentor so sometimes it's just about connecting them to someone to be their mentor and people like you jenny who you know um, are available to to give people advice and say hey you know um, have you thought about this have you thought about this kind of career and maybe working in in policy or law or or ocean-friendly business, and um, and it kind of goes back to you know I, maybe you remember I, I, when I was, when I was a kid there, there weren't that many people around saying hey you could be a marine biologist you know there weren't there was Jacques Cousteau and that was a he was a role model but he seemed to have that job kind of <laughs> well taken care of and then there's there was really nobody around at least in my world who was saying. The world needs marine biologists, and if that's what you want to do, uh, we can help you. Uh, I just got lucky that I, I I figured that out. I read it somewhere, but it, there, uh, you know that there aren't that many people out there um, letting young people know that uh, the world needs them, and their advocacy skills are, are important, and that they they can develop them and, and find a uh, a niche and find a career. So that's kind of what Ocean Revolution is is about, but it, it, it does a lot more than that because these young people bring all kinds of of interesting ideas and, and kind of edgy, creative ideas to get people's attention uh, on the ocean.
0: So this wouldn't have been possible fifteen twenty years ago before the internet. The
1: absolutely. internet absolutely made it possible. It's um, amazing. Yeah, and it, it was interesting. It's one of the things we you know, we started off thinking. Well, we'll give all of the young ocean revolutionaries email addresses, and that's how we'll keep in touch. And we quickly realized that they weren't using the email addresses that we gave them; they're using text messaging and Facebook and other all, all other ways of communicating. And these email boxes that we were setting up and <laughs> were just sitting empty. And so there's a it's the tech it's technology, but it's also sort of understanding that the technology is going to change. And once you maybe invest in something that you think is going to be the big solution that will connect people, uh, people have already moved on to the next thing.
0: I so, don't know. It's amazing. Yeah. It may be the thing that propels us forward towards change in the future is having this linking um, body in between these inv- invisible links to bring everybody together.
1: Yeah. And it's certainly getting harder for people whose, um, Interest is is not the ocean's health uh, to, to hide. It's, it's harder to get away with um, destructive activities uh, in in the world that we're in. So you know, uh, having young ocean revolutionaries care about the ocean uh, are are well connected and know how to use a video camera is um, is very powerful, and it, it helps them tell their stories and um, and build movement around. Sustainability and and restoring healthy oceans, and uh, that's a good thing. It's a good thing for the economy. It's a good thing for for communities. It's a good thing for our health, and it's uh, it's something we need we need to do. There's there's no choice in this.
0: Well, it's nice. It's a nice and structured piece here. I want to bring up a public survey. I'm, I don't know if you're you're probably aware of it. The um, the Ocean Project did a survey. 10 years ago in 1999, that really looked at the public's perception about the ocean and the condition of it, and it was fairly low. And it was redone actually with a much bigger survey uh, group of people, it was like 50,000 people, and that was completed this spring 2009. And it was really sad in that it showed that in the 10 years since the last public survey, there's been very little progress in terms of the public's awareness or concern for the health of the ocean as an environmental problem. And I think. I mean we can all it 's hard to say because I know that in my little community, I would say no that 's not true, but globally or this is united states wide this is still such a big issue, and you know it seems like with some of the recommendations that came out were youth are more motivated to get involved and youth have an, Im- an impact on their parents. but what do you think needs to happen to change this perception of bigger audiences
1: yeah, I, you know I think we need to. Uh, I was just having a conversation earlier today with my brother about this, who's an artist. And, I, you know, we, what we were talking about is I think we need to take the conversation about the environment uh, and jump the walls and get, get it into everything. And, and unapologetically, uh, you know, it's, you, you don't switch to the green channel when you want to think about the environment. It needs to be, it needs to be a conversation that's happening everywhere. And um, it's not just about making being into nature and into the environment cool. It's not just about the cool factor. That's certainly part of it. Uh, We need to be just very direct that uh, this is something we all need to do, and it needs to be part of uh, all of our conversations, because whether we're talking about health care, whether we're talking about our communities, um, whether we're talking about energy policy uh, it really is all connected to the environment and if if we're near the coast or we're near a river it connects to the ocean and that's that's just reality and we've gone a long way to uh, kind of advance compartmentalized discussions about making okay today we're going to talk about the ocean at this conference, and you kind of go to, off to the conference and talk about the ocean, and then come back and carry on with the rest of your life. Uh, but it needs to really kind of break out of break out of that rut and, mm-hmm. and get pushed into places where it's less expected. And and uh, that's you know that's part of I I think what uh, we've tried to do with Ocean Revolution is uh, you know the logos that we use don't look familiar; they don't look like your typical non-profit ocean organization logos. There, there's a lot of red color and bright stars and bold uh, sort of patriotic kind of stuff and um, some revolutionary sort of symbology and it, it gets people's attention and it's unexpected and it, it kind of breaks the conversation out of the place where it always seems to go, mm-hmm. yeah, which is in, you know, the, it's in your environmental studies class and it's on that one channel that you can switch to or switch away from. And I think that's, we need to break that out and have it just kind of mixed in everywhere. And that's something we can do actively um, as long as we don't fall into that that rut of feeling like we're making good progress because there's a green channel. Um, right. Because people can easily ignore the green channel if it's one of 500 channels and they can easily ignore our website, um, very easily, because there are you know billions of websites, and uh, it's it's more about treating the entire internet as your website and pushing your message out everywhere on onto other people's websites and having it incorporated in things and uh, not being sort of stuck into a little box. Yeah,
0: we have just about five minutes left here. Um, One of the things I also found on your website that I was really intrigued by is wondering if you could talk a little bit about the um, proposal that you're thinking about in terms of neurobiology and behavioral science related to marine conservation and exploring that relationship between how the human mind works and the ocean. I was wondering, could you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, we've got this project that we call the Mind and Ocean Initiative that, that I'll be digging into in the coming few years. Um, and I you know, again, it kind of goes back to the, the early days of of um, working on ocean conservation issues and as a grad student, uh, I wanted to go over to the other side of campus and take courses in uh, the social sciences and anthropology and sociology and and incorporate those things into uh, my degree and my studies and, uh, and into the problem solving, but that wasn't really being done. So it was, I was sort of steered away from that and um, over that time I've been developing some ideas of, uh, something I called neuroconservation, conservation which is uh, learning from cutting-edge modern neuroscience uh, how our minds and our brains work and then applying that to the activities uh, in, in the field of conservation and I had this proposal I've been, I've been really trying hard to give it away to a, <laughs> a young grad student to just say, hey, take this, and uh, um, if I can be of any help, let me know. And nobody, <laughs> nobody has taken it, so finally I've just decided I'm just going to do it and get this thing going. So it's really the, the idea is to think deeply about um, you know, what it is about the ocean that uh, makes us feel the way we feel and act the way we act and whether you're a fisherman or a biologist or uh, a beachcomber or a surfer, um, we can all kind of agree that being out on and near in the ocean makes us feel different than when we're uh, standing in our garage or um, sitting in front of a computer. Uh, And I'm really curious about why. Mm -hmm. And, um, Really, I mean, as a scientist, I find that question just sort of one of the ultimate questions. Uh, I want to know what what happens Mm -hmm. to to our brains, uh, literally and physically. (laughs) What happens to our minds? And I know you know, I know everybody listening knows that something happens, and uh, sometimes it's a little combination of things. Maybe a little fear and a little bit of longing and a little maybe a little meditative uh, depending on the circumstances Um, but people are willing to empty their pockets of all their money in order to live or vacation near the ocean why is that it's uh, very interesting
0: that's a really neat side topic i just think i'm fascinated too because that comes down to what you love you'll protect and how do we get people to connect to that
1: yeah, I mean the sound, the smell, the taste, uh, you know, what the ocean looks like, all that combined does something uh, very appealing to us
0: That's
1: and uh, for us and uh, it's uh I want to I want to know more about it and then use that knowledge, share it. You know, this isn't about any sort of knowledge and controlling anything. It's just I, I want to learn about that and I want to let everybody know. Um what's going on inside of us in response to the biggest feature of our blue planet, which is the ocean.
0: That's great. Well, Jay, we're coming up towards the end of the show here. We've gone from turtles to ocean revolutionaries (laughs) to neurobiology. I love it. And um, I know you're coming up here to San Francisco in a couple weeks. I've got an email here from David McGuire from Sea Stewards about Sharktoberfest.
1: Yes, that's going to be great.
0: And uh, a celebration of the shark this month. It's a great time because there's a lot of sharks around right now, swimming around off the Point Reyes Peninsula, I've heard. And uh, can you tell us just a little bit about the events? And and you're going to be up there. You're going to be talking and stuff about stuff.
1: Yeah, my good friend David um, is helping put together Sharktoberfest, a celebration of sharks um, up at the aquarium. If you do a Google search for Sharktoberfest, you'll come up with all the information on um, where to get tickets and where to be and when to be there and uh, we're just going to get a group of people together and, and we'll see some films, we'll, we'll talk about sharks um, have some snacks and have a really good time and uh, David's asked me to kind of make some of the opening remarks about um, kind of a uh, talk on where the wild things have gone and so we'll talk about sharks and other big things and, uh, and kick off Sharktoberfest
0: I'm loving this because I see a prize for best shark and shark prey costume contest. Yeah. <laughs> I'm loving that.
1: If you love sharks, that's the place to be in October if you're in the Bay Area.
0: And uh, Jim Toomey, uh, the creator of Sherman's Lagoon, is going to be there. That should be pretty fun. So. Yeah, we're
1: giving Jim, um, the great artist uh, Jim Toomey, uh, get, he's getting an award for his his work uh, on behalf of sharks through his his cartoon strip.
0: Excellent. Well, we are just about towards the end here, so folks interested in that can check out Sharktoberfest by just putting in that Google search or go to seastewards.org to learn more about that. But, Jay, it's, I can't believe it's like 2 o'clock almost here, <laughs> and uh, I've got a couple more things to announce. So I just want to say thanks so much for sharing your your passion with us today and with the world.
1: Yeah, thanks for, for have, letting me call in. It's really always fun to talk to you about the ocean.
0: You too. Take care. We've just been talking with Jay Nichols, who is a uh, man of many different disciplines, both science and education, inspiration, uh, working with sea turtles and, and now with, with youth and inspiring other people to become ocean conservation-minded folks to help protect this blue planet. So Sharktoberfest coming up October 16th and 17th. And you can check that out on the web for more information. Sounds like a whole diversity of different shark-related things. So those of you interested in sharks, you want to get down there. It's in San Francisco at Aquarium of the Bay. I thought I'd also just mention um, a couple other things. The uh, Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, we have a field seminar. We go out to Cordell Bank, and we certainly did not make it out there this Sunday because of some pretty bad sea conditions. Uh, with some pretty big winds and swells. But we have a second boat trip scheduled to reschedule that, and there's a lot of space available if you've been thinking about getting out to Cordell. It's October 18th, and it's a Sunday, and it's a full-day trip on the water. Uh, Hopefully our sea conditions will cooperate this time, but we'll see what we get. And you can call Kathy at Point Reyes Field Seminars at 415 663 One two zero zero extension three seven three. If you're interested in coming on that boat trip, it's a full day excursion. And uh, there are fees and registration involved with that. And that is October 18th. And I've heard there are a lot of whales offshore. So I'm really looking forward to getting on on the water soon to see them. And also, at the end of the month, we are celebrating the 20th anniversary of the Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary with the original explorers of Cordell Bank, the Cordell Expeditions Dive Team. I had Bob Schmider on earlier this year on the the radio program talking about his early expeditions, and the rest of the dive team is going to be joining him, coming in from all around California to share with everybody some of their experiences and harrowing tales of uh, descending into nothingness and then... What they saw was quite amazing. So October 24th is a Saturday at the Dance Palace Community Center in Point Reyes Station. We hope you can join us for that. It's a free event, 7 to 9 p.m. And uh, if you have any questions about that, you can give me a call at 415-663-1397. But that is pretty much a wrap for today's show. Uh, Coming quite close to the end here. And Ocean Currents is the first Monday of every month. And we talk about all different sorts of ocean topics. Ne- next month, I have uh, Tessa, Dre- Tessa Hill from Bodega Marine Lab talking about deep-sea corals. Um, something that's, It's a rather new um, area of uh, research as far as people finding deep-sea corals. Now that we're finally getting to the bottom of the ocean, we're starting to, to see these new habitats. So she'll be talking a little bit about her research with climate change associated with these deep-sea corals. If you want to come back to hear past shows of ocean currents, you can come right on to the Cordell Bank website, cordellbank.noaa.gov. You can subscribe for a podcast or download past shows. And I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas, thoughts, or things you'd like to share, please go ahead and email me at jennifer.stocknoaaa.gov. I'd like to thank our underwriters and supporters who keep this amazing station on the air. And thank you for tuning in. We will be back next month with a live show with Tessa Hill from Bodega Marine Lab. Thanks so much for tuning in. All made of silk, woven by silkworms, made from their own milk. Wood of the house, the tallest of trees, making honeyboats strong for crossing the seas. The, the honeyboats honey are coming. coming they here by dawn. Sleep, little baby, as I sing you this song. If you are quiet, you'll hear the wind blow that fills up the sails, bringing honey boats Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio, KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to (laughs) cordellbank.noaa.gov.